Mesdames et Messieurs, the greatest festival of our contemporary society, the Olympic Games, is about to begin. This is going to be close. Hello and welcome to another episode of Keep the Flame Alive, the podcast for fans of the Olympics and Paralympics. If you love the games, we are the show for you. Each week we share stories from athletes and people behind the scenes to help you have more fun watching the games. I am your host, Jill Jarris, joined as always by my lovely co-host, Allison Brown. Allison, hello. How are you? I burned my tongue this morning on my <laughs> coffee, <laughs> but I am powering through my coffee injury to record today all right so you don't need to do the nice thing is like if you've seen the movie a christmas story and you know how flick sticks his tongue to the metal uh, flagpole and then he has like big bandages over it you do not have that situation going on no but i did ice my tongue this morning so <laughs> later on the show we we may have some interesting slips of the tongue all right but, so well. thank goodness you edit <laughs> that's good and we're recording our patron episode for this month as well so that will be something to look for there too nice. this could get interesting Let's see uh, how i survived the injury <laughs> today we are excited to bring you part two of our interview with craig spence who is head of media at the International Paralympic Committee. Today we get into the Russia situation and when a decision will be made on whether or not Russia and Belarus will be able to participate in Paris 2024. And that will be just for the Paralympic side. Plus, we get into what it's been like for him to work with the different bosses at the IPC. Take a listen. So what is the current status for Russia and Belarus? Okay, so the current status is, and this could be a long-winded answer, is last year the IPC membership at the Extraordinary General Assembly in Berlin, they voted to suspend both Russia and Belarus. And by that suspension of IPC membership meant that they couldn't compete in, in IPC events and they also would lose their voting rights at the IPC General Assembly as well as some of the, some of the rights under the IPC constitution. Recently, Russia and Belarus uh, appealed to our Independent Appeals Tribunal, and the Independent Appeals Tribunal upheld their appeal, uh, which means they're no longer suspended, and that will then go forward to our IPC General Assembly this September in Bahrain, where, again, the members will look at the issue, discuss it, and determine what action should be taken. So is this based solely on the invasion of Ukraine and breaking the truce because the Russian Paralympic Committee was already suspended for doping issues. Yeah, in, in 2016, the IPC suspended uh, NPC Russia regarding doping and to do with the McLaren report. But that suspension was lifted. When they were suspended in 2016, we put in place a detailed plan of actions they needed to take and they undertook all but one of those actions. And, and they've done a very good job in improving their processes and practices and really being a proactive, I dare say, and compliant part of the IPC on that matter, which is why the suspension was lifted. So this suspension that the membership voted for at the Extraordinary General Assembly was related to the invasion of Ukraine 
and Belarus's role in that as well. So that's why the decision was taken. But as I say, the appeals, they went to the appeals tribunal recently and, and, and their appeal was upheld. For the doping thing, what issue were they not compliant on? It was effectively, I think, let me remember, it was not actually acknowledging, it was acknowledging that they'd done it wrong and they'd done oh. something. Basically, it was holding their hands up saying, yep, we did it. Uh, yeah, they didn't accept that. So how much communication is there between the IOC and the IPC on what happens to Russia and Belarus? I mean, I realize they're separate organizations, yep. but politically, you've got to deal with both of them. Yeah, and and the presidents speak a lot. Um, and you've got to appreciate, although we spate, we work in the same areas, sport, they organize the Olympics, we organize the Paralympics. Our rules are different. And like I say, the IOC members are people. Our members are organizations. So we're an organization of organizations. And therefore, because we've got different rules governing the two movements, we tackle the same issues, but sometimes we may reach different decisions. And what we do is we ensure there's a good level of communication between the two organizations and where we're at. So it doesn't come as a surprise when a decision is taken. So uh, maintaining that communication is, is critically important for both the IOC and both for the IPC. So one of the things that's happening for Olympic athletes is the individual federations have banned Russia from the qualifying events. So whether the IOC actually bans them, we may not see too many Russian athletes. How is the qualification for the Paralympics being affected by current bans in that will we still see Russian athletes, whether there's a, a ban or not? Yeah, so so in terms of each international federation, it's up to, uh, the, you've got to appreciate that in the Paralympic Games, the Summer Games, so if we look at Paris, there's 22 sports. Each international federation is responsible for what they want to do on this matter. So I know some of, some of the Paralympic-specific international federations have a suspension in place on Russia, others don't. For the IPC sports, when the suspension was in place, that prohibited the athletes from Russia and Belarus from competing in, in athletics, powerlifting, swimming, and shooting. Now that that suspension is not in place because of the appeals, we still have a motion in place from our, well, not a motion, but a, a ruling from our governing board, which was taken in Beijing in 2022, that wouldn't allow entries from Russian and athletes, from Russian and Belarusian athletes into our sport events for various concerns regarding safety and, and such like. That remains in place. So currently, Russian and Belarusian athletes cannot compete in world parasport events, which IPC govern. Now, the next step effectively is September when we have our General Assembly in, in, in Bahrain and our members, we're a very democratic organization. We have a very neutral view on this. It's for our members to take the decision on, on what happens. And, and at the General Assembly in September, our members will be able to present their views, including Bahrain, including NPC Russia, NPC Belarus, NPC Ukraine, and any other member that wishes to speak will be able to present their views on the subject. And then there'll be a democratic vote where people can decide on, on, on what action needs to be taken. So, so watch this space in terms of what happens for going forward now and that will obviously have an impact on Paris 2024 and qualifications so watch this space I dare say. So this isn't Russia's first rodeo with doing an invasion during a games and you were around 
in the IPC for Sochi. What was that like? Which happened a lot during it crossed over both Olympics and Paralympics. Yeah, it was it was a difficult situation that we had to deal with there. We we were obviously the invasion started before those games. Then they they actually stopped their action during the Paralympics, and and then the action continued after the Paralympics. So, yeah, it's uh, we've been here before. So you've worked with two different IPC presidents, very different personalities. Yes, very, very different. So Sir Philip Craven and Andrew Parsons. Let's just talk a little bit about them as bosses and as working with them. Well, they're not just bosses, they're friends. Sir Philip, yeah, Sir Philip from Bolton. So for those people who aren't particularly good on their geography of Great Britain, Bolton is a small town on the outskirts of, I dare say, close to Manchester. Manchester is 45 minutes drive from Leeds, which is where I'm from. And there's a big rivalry, not just between Leeds and Manchester, but also the counties that we're in. So I'm from, I'm born and bred in Yorkshire. Sir Philip, born and bred in Lancashire. And there's a, if you look at the history books, there's a huge rivalry between the two counties called the War of the Roses. I won't go into that because Philip will dead, get really excited because Lancashire won on penalties um, uh, but yeah so so the fact that we both came from a similar part of the world helped when I joined and I really had a great time working with Sir Philip we got on like a house on fire did we wind each other up regarding sport a lot yes we did cricket football we had a very good working relationship and because we just a a real great evolution of time I mean I knew nothing about Paralympic sport when I joined the IPC and I always remember Philip asking me when I when I was in the interview process like what do you know about Paralympic sport lad what do you know about Paralympic sport lad I think was what what he basically said and I was like you want my honest answer or do you want my uh my interview answer and he went give me the truth and I went I know nothing but I think I can change that for you. I said, I, I've done loads of research. I, I, I see real opportunities to grow this movement. And that was a real starting point of a great working relationship and a great friendship. And Phil was brutally honest in every single thing. I mean, you see that when he was in interviews. He was a straight-talking northern person, as I am. So we complimented each other, but we clashed. You know, like any a good working relationship, you don't always agree on everything, and it was important that you could work through your issues. But we got on really, really well, and it was it was great fun working with him. And yeah, it was it was sad when his term came to an end, and then Andrew came along, and Andrew's a similar age to me. Again, Andrew and I are very we're great friends. We both have a, a passion for football, and it's it, two very very different people. But luckily, two people that I got on really well with, Andrew's come. What I like about Andrew is is replacing Philip was never going to be an easy task. Do you know what I mean? He's, Philip had taken the movement and really grown it and built on the work of Dr. Bob Steadwood, who was our founding president. And it's important that when presidents come in, they don't just continue to do what the last person did. And Philip did change things when he took over from Dr. Bob Steadwood. And Andrew did the same. He came in and said, look, this is my vision for what I want my presidency to be. And and, and it's something I really do buy into, which is we've seen an evolution of the Paralympic movement, which is we're a membership-based organization. We've expanded the number of members we've got globally. And that happened during Philip's term, where the number of national Paralympic committees really did increase. Andrew wants to make them stronger. So it's not just about 
number of members, it's strength of members. The Paralympic Games is this fantastic sport event. And Andrew said, if you put the two of them together, we make a significant impact on the world. I want to introduce a third strategic pillar to the IPC that's all about impact on the world. And that's been really cool. And that's why you saw We The 15, for example, is it was a real nice way of us showing impact on there. Um, what I really, one of the real joys of working with Andrew is he's, he's a former journalist. He knows PR. So sometimes when you work with senior leaders, if they're not, if they're not familiar with communications, they have a completely different view on, on what should be doing. And that can be really difficult because Andrew is a journalist you can really get into some of the details and tactics and strategies behind the direction you want to do things. And that's really good. And, and again, like I say, Andrew's a real close friend, but we do clash. And I think it's really important. And I always say this about our senior executive team at the, import, at the IPC. You're never going to go anywhere as an organization if you have people who are identical to you. It's important that you have a diverse view of opinions and you challenge each other because out of that will come great work. And yeah, it's... It, Working with both presidents has been an absolute pleasure and great enjoyment. And I've it's probably been the best 13 years I've had working-wise in terms of enjoyment. I mean, I think anyone who works for the IPC, we love the organization we work for, but what we love more is is the fact that we're so purpose-driven and the impact that we have on the world and, and the trust that I think both Sir Philip and Andrew have placed in me, I'll, I'll be forever grateful for. So given Sir Philip's bluntness, and given Parsons' passion, yep. how often do you have you had to say, you can't say that to the press? You can't say it that way, Mr. President. Yeah. There's, I think, look, with any leader, you always there's a little bit of cleaning up that you have to sometimes do. You have to get the little broom out and, and sweep around some of the edges. Yeah, there's a few times where I've gone, maybe you shouldn't have said it like that. And you've got to say it in such a, I mean, don't grip, I'm a blunt, Yorkshireman so I will say it as it is if someone says something wrong usually it's a bit of a glare that I inherited from my mother uh, <laughs> the Spence glare um, and then we address it behind the scenes and, and often we'll have a chat after interviews and saying look this you said it this way and that's opened this avenue and, and therefore you need to close that down or how can we do it so after most interviews or press conferences we have a little bit of a debrief but I'm never going to be sat there and going I'm not a person who will go, you've done a fantastic job if they've dropped a bombshell and we've got a, we've got some crap to deal with. So yeah, occasionally we have to sweep up, but that's that's the job that a comms person has to do. But it's important that you have that two-way working relationship in the same way they won't be scared to say if I've done something wrong. And that's that's the thing I, I, I've got to value about both of them. I got to take a sidestep. When you started the Paralympic movement, like how did you get up to speed? How did I get up to speed? Yeah, and learning yeah. about what, what it was all about and the sports and things like that. Yeah, I um I had almost a three-month break from work before I, I joined the IPC. So in between reading books, I was reading about the Paralympic movement, who the sports, how the movement was structured and such like. And then there's only so much research you can do online and, and such like. I in the, Once I knew I'd got the job, I... So I worked, I worked in sport before this for a governing body in the UK. So I was pretty connected with British media. I went to see a friend at the BBC, a guy called Ricky Singh, who was working on the Paralympics and, and a great touch point. So I went and sat down with Ricky and said, Ricky, get me up to speed, will you please? So he was a great help in, the, in, in that 
period before I joined the games, really shared his views on what he felt that the IPC wasn't doing in terms of comms and such like. So there's a lot of learning and building of knowledge before I got there. And then when you join the IPC, because we're such a small organization, I mean, when I joined the IPC in 2010, there were 30 of us. Comms was me and one other person. So you're thrown in the deep end. And then because we were the International Federation for 10 Sports there, and now it's six, is I was going to events all the time. So I was like within, I think on day three of my, I joined the IPC on a Monday, and by Wednesday I was flying to Sochi. No, flying to Moscow for a meeting to discuss Sochi 2014. I will always remember the director of communications for Sochi asking where the IPC's comms plan was for Sochi. And I went, I started 48 hours ago. You know that. And she was like, yes, but you should be getting on with this. So it was quite good fun. But then I went to see sporting events. So I was lucky enough in 2010 to go to the Asian Para Games in Guangzhou, a multi-sport competition, which gave me a great opportunity to see different sports and, and, and the level of competition. And then 2011, I went to the World Para Athletics Championships in Christchurch, New Zealand. And that's when I really, the penny dropped that this was going to be the greatest job on earth because I, I really got a chance to sit down with athletes meet them as people and understand what made them tick, how they trained. And re- that's when I realized, having worked for a governing body in the UK, with, which was rugby, and just how hard the athletes trained there. And then you chat with a Paralympian and you're like, you're training just as hard as an able-bodied athlete. This is phenomenal. That gave me some good insight into what we could do in terms of building the, the comm strategy. But what was critically important for me, I think, was no one knew who our athletes were. And it was really important that people engage in sport through athletes. They don't in, they don't engage in, in men in suits or scuffy blue t-shirts that I'm in today. They engage in the athlete community. So it was really important that we started to tell the story of who our athletes are, who they are, how they train, what they want to achieve, and how they're ambassadors for change. So yeah, those first that first year was was really important. And I always say to all our new colleagues when they join, it takes six months to get up to speed with how the Paralympic movement works and the ins and outs. And I'm still learning today and I'm 13 years in and I hope I never stop learning. What keeps you up at night? <sighs> Lots of things. Probably hangovers. Uh, <laughs> From the trip uh, to Las Vegas, Yeah, apparently. no, I mean, look, I think there's many things that keep me up, up at night, like, but it's little things that come and go. And obviously it depends on where you are in the game cycle. So, for example... I'm sleeping much better now than I did two years ago. So I'll be honest with you, when the pandemic came and and Tokyo 2020 was postponed, I didn't get a lot of sleep for that 18 months leading up to it. I mean, the stress levels were huge there because if we lost the games and Tokyo didn't happen, that would have had a dramatic impact, not just on the IPC as an organization and the Paralympic movement as a whole, but 1.2 billion people in the world. And that was... That kept me awake a lot because every time we organized the Paralympic Games, we advanced the rights of persons with disabilities globally. And if you didn't have the Games, then you've almost got eight years where you don't have that pushing of of inclusion. And, and, And that, I felt a huge sense of responsibility then, I think. And that kept me awake a lot. And then obviously, how do you organize the Paralympics during the pandemic? It was going to be, that 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 was really difficult. I think things at the moment that keep me awake at night is, Ticket sales for Paris will go on sale very soon. 
that's a critical thing for us. How do we make those really sell and fly off the shelves? We've got 3 million tickets to sell. So that keeps me awake at night. My football team in, in England, Leeds United, are just about to get relegated from the Premier League. That keeps me awake, especially some of the managerial appointments. But yeah, you know, like everyone has stresses at work and little things keep you awake at night. But yeah, I, I think one thing I've learned over the years working at the IPC is how to mitigate stress through exercise. So I sleep pretty well, I'll be honest. I just wake up early and then come into the office early to clear my emails. For a summer games, even though Tokyo was really stressful, is it helpful to have one less year in the cycle to keep that momentum going? Yes and no. Yes and no. I was just going to say, you've got more to do in less time. Yeah, I mean, if I look at that game cycle is, look, no one had ever organized an Olympics or Paralympics again following a postponement or during a pandemic. So that period from the postponement through to the games actually taking place was 18 months, pretty much. There weren't many days off during that time. And the so and where we as the IPC and also the IOC, we're working on multiple games at any one time. So we're all we're already working on Brisbane 2032, so nine years out. So as we were obviously focusing so heavily on getting Tokyo delivered, Beijing's still coming to you, Paris is still coming to you, saying, look, we need support here, and, and Milan, for example. So they obviously, we couldn't share the love around. So so they, them as organizing committees weren't getting the time that they probably needed with us at the time. So yes, although we've got the three-year window compared to four years, now we're, we're like straight after Tokyo, we had to then play catch up on getting Paris up to speed on, on where they needed to be. So this swings and roundabouts, advantages and disadvantages. Um, but what's important is now we're in a good position for Paris and I think the games there are going to be magical. What will make you feel like you were a success at the IPC in the very distant hmm. future when you leave us? I don't know. That's a good question. Um, did I make a difference? And and did I leave the place in a better place than when I joined it? I think that's important. And did I make a difference? And did people enjoy what I did? Did the people who worked for me, were they better employees as a result? So I'm, I think that's that's things that are important. And is the world a more inclusive place than when I joined it? I think those are the things that I, that's that's real, that's going to keep me awake tonight now thinking of that. Um, <laughs> it's a good question. It's a good question. But like, ultimately, did I make a difference and did the work that, that we do as an organization, are we making a difference? And I'd like to think that to, today it's a yes, but there's still room for scope and, and change and improvement. Thanks, Alison. Now, now I'm going to stay awake realizing I stressed Craig out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll have to have a beer tonight when I get home. <laughs> that makes me so sad. Oh, good. I'm glad Werner getting to this point on a high note. So thank you so much for joining us, Craig. No worries. I've really enjoyed it. It's been good fun, despite the fact that I won't sleep tonight. <laughs> thank you so much, Craig. You can follow Craig on Twitter. He is at Craig Spence, and he's on Craig William Spence on LinkedIn, and Craig Spence 79 on Instagram, and we will have links to those in the show notes. I do want to mention something that happened in the interview. So after we were totally done, Craig was so apologetic about not wanting to get into Russia. So if he sounds like he's being evasive, he really wasn't. He really wants to preserve the credibility. So I do want to give him credit for 
in just the interview at Matt Stein, like he was trying to sidestep, but he wasn't. He absolutely was trying to protect the IPC in a very delicate situation. So we appreciate that. Exactly. So thank you, Craig. That sound means it is time for our history moment. All year long, we are looking at the Seoul 1988 Olympic Games as it is the 35th anniversary of those games. Allison, it is your turn for a story. I'm very excited because we are getting into rhythmic gymnastics. We are, and I'm very excited for this as well. It is going to involve a lot of Russian and Eastern European names. So let's keep our fingers crossed because you know how I do with those. This was only the second time rhythmic gymnastics had been on the Olympic program and the first time that the major players, the Soviet Union and Bulgaria, would be participating because both had boycotted the 1984 LA Games. So there was only an individual competition. Teams did not come in until 1996. So this competition included rope, which we no longer see in international competitions, hoop, clubs, and ribbon. Okay, I have to stop. I would love to know what it was like, because we know that the push for rhythmic came to be into the games came from Eastern Europe since they're such a stronghold in this. And then for the very first one for their main players to not be able to compete because they boycotted. What was that like? And And a Canadian won in 84 and we've never seen another North American on the podium (laughs) since. So they've absolutely dominated. The okay. Real dom- and wait, you also had to tell me what rope is all about. Okay. So rope is a rope. It's a short rope. And How does it, it was vary a- from ribbon? It's much shorter. It's small. Okay. And they've there's various reasons and explanations given why it's no longer used. One of them was the girls were getting rope burns on their hands. And that it caused a lot of injuries. Some people think it was eliminated because it's boring. (laughs) But you do not see see rope in international competition anymore. But what you did see at that time was a group of Bulgarian gymnasts who are called the Golden Girls. They had swept the podium at the 87 World Championship. Did not do as well in Seoul. So the reigning world champion, Bianca Panova, dropped a club in the preliminary round. She ended up off the podium at fourth. There were two silver medalists in 87. They tied. And Elizabeth Kaleva... Wait, wait, wait. Are we in 87 or 88? No, 87 world championships. There were two silver medalists. And the reigning silver medalist, Elizabeth Kaleva, fell victim to the two gymnasts per per country rule. So she was not allowed to compete in Seoul, and she retired soon after. Adriana Donovska had tied Kaleva in 87 at the World Championship, and she won the silver medal at Seoul. Okay, so now we're on to the Soviets, who ended up winning the gold and the bronze medals. Marina Lobach had earned a perfect score on each apparatus in the final. She was the first to ever do that. But she had a tiny bit of help during the clubs. Oh. At at the time, routines were performed to live music. Wait, they had had a band? No, you were only allowed to use one of three instruments. So it was a single instrument, either guitar, piano, or percussion. So there was a pianist who played your music for you. And... 
usually what the musician would do is match the speed of the gymnast. But Marina in her club routine was moving a little slowly. And the pianist noticed that she was about to go over time. So he speeded up his playing so that she wouldn't get a time violation. And that tenth of a point was the difference between gold and silver. So he should have gotten a medal as well. I'm I'm just flabbergasted by the live music component of this. Plus, I'm also flabbergasted by the percussion. Like, what was it? Maracas? Was it a snare drum? Did they have like a xylophone? (laughs) I only saw things that were guitar and piano. I could not find anything that was percussion. So I don't think it was terribly popular. But it really added an element of unpredictability for the gymnast because every musician is a little different. You know, every time you play a piece of music live, it's going to have a variation, though, for Marina that saved her because this pianist was watching the clock. You need to bring that back. I know. (laughs) You just want snare drums and xylophones. I want anything to make this better. There was no sparkles. These leotards were basic leotards, too. Amen. <laughs> the bronze medalist was Alexandra Timoshenko, and she went on to win the gold in 92 for the unified team. But here's a really cool thing about her. It, at the 1992 European Championships, she was one of the first athletes to win a medal for the newly independent Ukraine and to be honored with the Ukrainian flag and anthem. And just a side note, Marina Lobach was also not Russian. She was from Belarus. Oh, interesting. Hmm. So ropes and twinkles, I guess we're saying, were were big. I'm going to have to not sparkles. (laughs) (laughs) I know what I'm doing with the rest of my afternoon, and that's watching some rhythmic from Seoul 1988. Welcome to Shuklistan. Now is the time of the show where we check in with our team, Keep the Flame Alive. These are past guests of the show and listeners who make up our citizenship of our very own country, Shuklistan. Uh, first off, shooter Tim Sherry scored a new national record in three-position rifle at the USA Shooting National Championships, and he also won a silver in prone. Sean Callahan won a New England Emmy Award for continuing coverage of the January blizzard in the Boston area. Sailor Stephanie Robel and Maggie Shea will represent the U.S. in the 49er FX at the Paris 2024 test event taking place July 7th through 16th in Marseille, France. I gotta say, I watched a, a video yesterday of the construction of the sailing complex in Marseille. It looks really cool. We'll be taking the fast train to go visit it. I'm very tempted. I am very, very tempted. Let's see how the schedule works. Boxer Ginny Fuchs is fighting India Smith on June 17th at the Smoothie King Center in New Orleans. We will have links to how you get tickets for that. You can email her at GinnyFightsTickets at gmail.com or stream it on Dazen, which is D-A-Z-N.com. Former BMX racer Connor Fields is being inducted into the Southern Nevada Sports Hall of Fame. Hey, Jill. Yeah? We got a new website. We 
did get a new website. Oh my gosh, it's so exciting. Thanks to your support, we were able to invest in a new website and we worked with somebody to build it. His name's Mark at podcastbranding.co. Did a fabulous job. We are so excited that it is up. It's a lot more functional. So please do check it out. And that's at flamealifepod.com. I was surprised I hadn't seen this story earlier, but one of the Paris 2024 sponsors, which is a French bank called BPCE, they are sponsoring a sport-themed exhibit at the Petit Palais that will run during the Olympics and Paralympics, and the sponsorships include some restoration going on in the museum as well. This museum was built to accompany an exhibition that ran during Paris 1900, so it's got a lot of Olympic history attached to it. And the Petit Pelé is along the triathlon route. And if you're going to see marathon swimming, it's it's all in the it's right by that same bridge in the Pont Alexandre Troisième. So right there, put it in the little agenda. I will put it in our agenda. I would like to see it. And the, the petite agenda. <laughs> no, our agenda is c'est grand. Mm. but it will uh, be there along the triathlon route and that is courtesy of inside the games we like to talk a little bit about production in a way because it's always curious what what, since tokyo 2020 when most of the broadcast staff was out of the country at least here channel 4 in the uk is going to produce the paralympics remotely from wales so this is a story found in tvbeurope.com, and they will have 200 staff in Cardiff, and then they'll have an on-screen team in Paris. It's like what NBC is doing, where the staff is here in Stanford, Connecticut, and then I don't know how much on-screen presence they're going to have for Paralympics. Yeah, they I think- announced that. They're, they've announced how many hours, and we're going to broadcast all this coverage, but it'll be interesting to see who's here and who's there. Exactly. And I'm curious to see what we will notice because in Paris, they've split the broadcast separately from the press media. So we won't see them like we saw them in Beijing. But I am very curious as to how much the pandemic has changed permanently, or at least for another cycle or two of how broadcasters cover the games. We do have some winter 2030 news that just came out. And we can't get music for 2030 until we get a host. And now we even have fewer cities who want a host. Right? So the Kyoto News is reporting that Sapporo has officially dropped its bid to host the 2030 games due to a lack of support from the public, thanks to all of the bribery problems connected with Tokyo 2020. And there's been a poll that said that a full 60% of people do not support this bid. So the Japanese Olympic Committee scrapped it. They said, we would approve Sapporo or any other city as a bid city for 2034 or later if they want to. But right now we can't do 2030 just because of all of the problems associated. And it's really sad that we still have this these bribery problems. And I really hope that it's it's something else that goes to bed with the whole gigantic bids and we're going to build all of the arenas for the games kind of thing. Jill, don't be giving people ideas about going to bed with things. 
That's another scandal we cannot have. <laughs> well, you know what I mean. So now we have n- nobody really who want host wants to host 2030. I've not seen anything recent about Stockholm wanting to host or how they are doing in the process. And we know that Salt Lake City would really rather prefer not to host in 2030 just because it's right after LA 2028 and it's really hard. Plus, back to back in America probably not favorable for the rest of the world. Well, we know it. how much I'm begging the Swedes to just forgive <laughs> us, to take us back. We didn't mean it. Those other cities meant nothing to us. <laughs> please, please, we want to please, go to Stockholm. Please, Swedes, and- <laughs> we love you. Oh, st- And it was, we, I mean, they don't have to do much. That Stockholm bid was so well put together and could so easily just be brushed off and put back into circulation. But I honestly think the Swedes are mad about oh, what I think happened so with Milan. And they're just like, no. And we're not taking you back. We can do better than you, IOC. And not spend all the money. So and not spend all the money. Oh, but I so want to go to Riga. Right? Oh. And stop. Oh. It's like I'm doing the one woman campaign to convince the Swedes. <laughs> I think I'm gonna have to do a tour of Sweden. <laughs> the charm offensive. I don't know how charming I will be, but I will try. I'll just show up in the middle of Stockholm. Please, Swedes, <laughs> take our Winter Olympics. <laughs> All right. Well, we will look for you on the squares of Stockholm. So you better start planning that. So we'll close this episode up for this week. Let us know what you thought of our interview with Craig Spence and what you think of the IPC's governance versus the IOC's governance. You can connect with us on Twitter and Instagram at FlameAlivePod. Email us at FlameAlivePod at gmail.com. Call or text us at 208-352-6348. That's 208-FLAME-IT. Be sure to join the Keep the Flame Alive podcast group on Facebook. And don't forget to get our weekly newsletter filled with other fun stories about this week's episode. And you can sign up for that at our very cool new website, flamealivepod.com. And I will say, if you missed this week's newsletter, you missed an excellent story about snow tunnels and how you could get to ski in them. It's on the list, seriously on the list. We would like to give a special thank you to our intern, Annalie Dable, for doing research for this episode. And you can join us again next week for more stories from the Olympics and Paralympics. We're getting close to one year to go till Paris, people. Get excited. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, keep the flame alive. <laughs>